Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brett Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego. Providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Good morning, and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, and thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, I've been doing the Smart Investing Show here uh, in San Diego on local radio for, gosh, nearly 30 years. And today we have a special show for you. We always talk about long-term investing understanding more about how to invest using fundamental analysis. Well, today we're dedicating the entire show to understanding long-term investing via uh, uh, fundamental analysis. Chase, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning. Good to be here. And we've been talking about this show for a while. Very excited to do this show. It's really going to be, because we have a lot of listeners, uh, again, we're doing the show for a long time. I do this every once in a while because we get a lot of new listeners. And they don't understand what we're talking about. So and you'll never understand completely. It's like your car. You understand maybe how to fix your car. No, don't know how to fix it, but you know something's wrong with it. Well, that's what today's show is about. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of funny. I was talking to a gentleman the other day, and he was saying, you know, I listen to the show, and it, it, it makes sense, but I, I don't really know exactly what you're saying all the time. And, you know, that is a, a great point of view to have because we've had listeners for years now. And the more you listen, the more you pick up. Mm-hmm. And you may not realize that you're learning, but you really are. And you right. start to understand different ratios. You really start to understand the proper way to invest in companies. And, and that's why we love doing the show. And that's why I think today's show is really going to be beneficial because we're going to dive down a little bit deeper to give you that understanding. A lot of times you just get the number and say, uh, I'm not really quite sure on that. Today we'll go in more detail on that right. for you. Yeah, so they're going to understand the numbers. And I just love doing this because it really helps people understand more. And to let you know, we're not about day trading. We're not short-term investors. We talk about investing in businesses, which are equities, stocks. Because we look at buying a, a business for two, three, maybe four or five years, uh, not two, three, five days. So it is for long-term investors, and that's worked very well, which we'll give you more throughout the show why that's worked well. But, but l- let's get started here because one thing that's always kind of gotten people was like, well, how do I know what I should pay for a stock? And also, too, how, how do I know when to sell it? That was the other thing, too. People said, well, I, I bought it at a good time, but I don't know what the value is to sell it. And that's why what we do is we look at the valuation ratio. So let, let's explain that. I mean, the first one we look at is the P.E. ratio. A lot of people know about the P.E. ratio. It's the price-earnings ratio. And this is very important because it tells you what you're paying for the earnings of that company. Yeah, it's so important. As you kind of said, you, you want to understand what you're paying for that business. And kind of jumping around here, we'll get back sure. to the P.E. ratio. But we always tell people, you know, when you go into the stock market, it's a market of stocks. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I say it's like going in the grocery store. When you get something on sale, wow, you're you're so excited. You pull something out from the sale, and you're like, wow, I feel like I got a great deal here. You know, you don't just go into the grocery store and get a pre-selected basket of goods. That's the stock market. We like to go in and find those good deals, and we find those good deals through those valuation ratios. And as you mentioned, the price-to-earnings multiple is such an important one, probably the most common one that people reference. There's a lot of things to really break down on this one. I mean, you might see sometimes a company might not have earnings there. Right. Is that a problem? It, it it could be, and it's probably one of the most widely used, but the widely also uh, un- unknown, I guess, that people don't really understand it. Because you can have a great P.E. ratio but not realize 
that those earnings came from maybe the sale of a business or the sale of a building that bumped their earnings up for that, that uh, quarter, for that uh, period. Uh, very important to understand where these numbers come from. And the reverse can be true as well. We talked about uh, no P.E. ratio. Oh, well, that's not good. Well, maybe it is if you understand the earnings part of the P.E. ratio. Yeah, a, a great example is, you know, you look at, let's say, a refining company that does refines gasoline and diesel and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, the way that they actually have to do their accounting is if you see a decline in oil prices, well, oil is part of their goods that they have to hold on their balance sheet that they use to produce that. Well, now they have to mark down the value of the oil on their balance sheet, and then due to that markdown, they have to put that on their income statements, which produces a big loss. doesn't mean they're going to have that loss going forward every single quarter, so it could really present a good opportunity. So, you know, the face value of the P.E. number, you know, it's important to look at, but even more important to really understand what do those earnings truly mean. Yeah, and, and I'd say the P, the price, is not the important part because that gives you the ratio, but the earnings, you've got to understand those earnings. You made a good point on, on uh, oil companies. There's many different examples you look at, and that's why you got to dig into the income statement, which hopefully we'll get to that as well. Uh, some other financial statements here. And so important, uh, kind of the basic for the P.E. ratio. You want that to be lower, <laughs> yeah, typically. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, you see P.E. sometimes, and people love these companies. They can be, you know, high flyers, very well-known companies. They can have P.E.s of 100, 200 times earnings. That means it would take you 100, 200 years yes. to make back what you paid for for that stock in terms of the earnings of that business. We'd rather do that in less time than more time. Again, that's why that lower P.E. ratio is an important sign to look at. Yeah, and we also look at the forward P.E. ratio, which we'll get into more towards the end. But we're talking about the trailing 12 months, what it was, to give you a value of the company. Um, also, to one, another one that we look at, again, there's four valuation ratios we look at. One that's more pure, because you can't do any accounting to it, is what you're paying for the price to sales. And again, this is another one that you do want this lower than the industry average because it means you're paying less for the sales. Yeah, and it's such an important thing. You bring up the industry average, and we compare all of these numbers to the industry average because we always tell people a number means nothing at all unless you have something to compare it to. So that's why we look at the industry average compared to our company. You know, you could have just an absolute number there, and hey, maybe it looks good. But you need to have that comparison basis, which is why we do that. And then as you brought up, the, the sales is, is so important because, as we mentioned, the earnings can be, you know, I don't want to say transformed quite easily. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there could be some accounting tricks that happen. We discussed a couple of them earlier. That's why price to sales is another multiple that's very nice to look at. As you said, very, very clean. Another one we look at, too, is the book value of a company. And this is very important as well. It's where you take your assets, minus your liabilities, and you get the book value kind of uh, for, for individuals like your net worth is what it actually is. Well, very important to understand what you're paying for that. But also, too, there's two. There is a price to, to, to book value and then a price to tangible book value. Let's, let's explain the difference here because the, the book value just includes all the assets, minus liabilities. You get the book value and then how much you're paying for that based on, on the price. But the trickier one that we look at because it can change a lot is the price to tangible book value. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things that can be quite difficult to understand in a tangible book value. And what it does is it removes all the intangible assets. Now, intangible assets include things like, gosh, you know, a great example is Disney. You know, mm -hmm. Mickey Mouse is not something you can go physically touch and say, hey, I have this building worth Wait, X amount of dollars. Disney mean you can? Well, I guess they're not real, though, are they? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Mickey Mouse does have a value to it, and that's an intangible asset. Another one to look at is goodwill. 
Now, goodwill, it can be quite dangerous. I mean, what that is, is if a company buys another business, it's whatever they pay for that company above their book value. So you could buy a company, let's say, a billion dollars over their book value. Now you have $1 billion worth of goodwill on your balance sheet. Well, what happens if that business does not live up to its hype, you could see some major write-downs. And I don't want to just say hype because it could still have a good name. If it doesn't live up to the expected future cash flows, that's where you could see those major write-downs, and that could hurt the earnings in the future. So we're pretty cautious on these intangible assets just because it's a little bit harder to understand. And, Chase, I've been in the finance world for over 40 years now, and, and going back many years, there was a big deal back when Time Warner bought AOL. And they had to write down, I believe the number was about $100 billion in intangible assets because the value just wasn't there. And they now have to do these tests to say, is that really worth that? If not, you got to write it down. And that can change your whole accounting structure, which can throw that, that low PE, well, that can throw that out, out, out of the window. Yeah, and, and it's so funny you bring up that deal. A lot of times people look back on that and say, oh, well, what were they thinking? <laughs> well, at the time. I can tell you, those people were like, wow, this is going to be great. You know, AOL and Time Warner, they're both big. Well, now AOL, you know, I don't even know if they're around. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I, don't, I think they are to some degree. Just to some degree, yeah. yeah. But they're not the major player. They were. No. And you have to be so cautious because things do change, you know, five, ten years down the road where something can look quite nice at that time. But again, five, ten years down the road, it just does not play out that way, and that's where that company becomes at risk for those write-downs. And, and we bring that one up, which is good as well, because, again, you have to be very careful. And this is why we don't like growth companies, because AOL is a great growth company, and people lost tons of money on it because they were overpaying for the sales, the earnings, the book value, because, oh, that doesn't matter. It does matter longer term. If you want to have a good retirement, a good long-term investment, you've got to look at these fundamentals to make sure that your investment portfolio is safe and secure. Yeah, and just kind of last thing on the price of tangible book value, as I kind of talked about, it's hard to value these assets. That's one thing that's kind of nice with the physical assets, you know, a piece of equipment, you know, a building. You can actually physically touch and see and really get a good idea of what that is worth. That's why, again, we'll, we'll, we'll take a very close look at the tangible book value. We'll still look at the book value, but also we want to take a close look at the tangible book value to understand the big picture. And the last one that's important, and again, when we manage money for our clients, we look at all four of these. They all are uh, very important. We also look at price to cash flow. How much are you paying for the cash flow of that business? And cash flow is something that is like a pure number because you're just looking at the cash. You take out things like depreciation, amortization, to say what is this uh, business bringing in for cash flow, which again is very important. Oh, absolutely very important. I mean, for those business owners out there, you, you know cash flow is very <laughs> important. And, and we tell people it, it's so important to look at this measure because this can help you kind of understand downturns. If they have good cash flow, they can again continue to generate that and pay those bills. If it's it's good cash flow, of course. Right. You know, you might have some things, as we mentioned, you know, say of a building, things like that might be a one-time issue. That's why we'll look at the breakdown of cash from operations. We'll look at the cash from investing activities and cash from financing activities. There's all these different things you got to look at in cash flow statement to make sure you're getting a good number. And Chase, all these numbers come from the financial statements, the balance sheet, income statement, cash flow statement. That's where you go to check these uh, numbers because the ratios are good. They can tell you if there's something wrong, but you got to go to the financial statements to say what is going on here. Uh, another thing moving on here that, that people get uh, kind of confused on and, and, and make mistakes on is dividend yield. They'll see something paying a 10% yield like, oh, wow, this is great. I'll get a 10% return on it. Here's another number. 
that you have to understand, can they pay that dividend? Can they afford that dividend? And there's something called a dividend payout ratio. Yeah, it's so important to look at this because, as you said, a lot of people fall victim to this idea of, oh, I'm getting this great dividend, so it's going to be a great stock. They forget to think about, well, it could get cut down the road. And if you get cut, all of a sudden you lose that income. Now, the dividend payout ratio tells us how much of a company's earnings they use out to pay out that dividend. And the other thing you do, too, is also look at that. You can also look at the cash flow. How's their cash flow been over the years? Can they afford to pay this dividend? Because, again, it's nice to get that dividend, but also, too, you got to make sure the company can pay. We, we've seen some companies with a dividend payout ratio of 100, 120%. Well, you, unless you understand the numbers, you know that can't sustain that. And I hate when companies borrow money to pay a dividend. I've seen that happen over the years. That's a terrible thing to do. That's not a good situation to be in. Well, it's very scary because you're, you're running up your, your interest expense, essentially, yeah. and that's going to hurt your cash flow. And then also paying out the dividend, well, that's still cash flow going out. So it, it's a dangerous thing. And you know, a lot of times people, they, they look at the top of the dividend but they don't look at the dividend payout ratio. So important. I always tell people, you don't have to be a mathematician. I know you can't pay out 120% of your earnings over the long term. You have no money left over to invest in your business. Well, if you're not investing in your business, your business ain't going to be very hot. You know, down the <laughs> not going to last very long. You're going to be gone. Uh, we do like dividends, though. I, I, I think about 90% of our investments that we do have dividends because dividends are, are profits from the companies. If you understand, again, back to the financial statements, uh, we have seen companies with dividends that they grow them over time. And not two, three months. We're talking five, ten years. Uh, we've had some companies in our portfolio that we bought 10, 12 years ago. Uh, they were initially paying a 3 maybe a 4% dividend, now paying a 10 to 15% dividend. Why is that? Because as company earnings increase over time, they will increase that payout uh, that they're doing. Not the payout ratio, but the actual dollars. Why? Because their earnings went up, cash flow went up, so therefore they can pay a higher dollar amount in dividends, therefore increasing your yield because you paid a lower price on the stock. Absolutely. And uh, I did want to kind of cover as well, what, what, what is our, our concern level essentially with the payout ratio? I normally get concerned. It starts to get close to like 80, 85 percent. I was like, ah, this is this is looking a little dangerous here. So if you're if you're having a company that's paying a dividend, make sure you you don't have a dividend pay rate, payout ratio that's too high. Yeah. Well, let's move on again to because we've talked about the value of companies, we've talked about the dividend, but we do want that business that we're buying to grow. We want them to grow their sales, grow their earnings. So a couple of things we look at is that on the sales growth, also known as the revenue growth, we look at it year over year for the last financial information. And also, too, quarter over quarter. And actually, I got that mixed up. Revenue year over year, last financial information is quarter over quarter. Uh, year over year will be the last 12 months. But these are numbers that, again, we want to see them growing. And here again, a number means nothing at all unless it has something compared to. So how's it growing compared to the industry and what it competes in? Yeah, and, and the thing to look at here as well is the LFI, the last financial information. We're taking, let's say, Q1 versus last year versus Q1 this year. And the reason you want to keep the quarter the same is let's say you have a, a retail company. Well, a retail company, they might have a very strong Q4 because that's when their holiday season is. So you don't really want to compare Q4 to Q1. Very important you compare like time to like time. So that's why we like to look at Q1 to Q1. And you said the last 12 months, the same 12 months versus the next 12 months. You want to keep those items constant. Yeah, Chase, I mean, earnings are something that you really want to look at here because earnings are something that, uh, like the sales, you, you want to look at them for the quarter over quarter, also year over year. And again, compare them to the industry average. Is your business doing better earnings-wise than 
who they compete with in, in their industry. And very important to look at the industry, not the S&P 500, not the sector, but the industry, which is a close comparison of those companies in which you compete with. And it's a great idea to look at that to see if that company is losing market share, perhaps gaining market share. You know, if your competitor is growing at such a better rate, why are you not able to grow at that rate is, is going to be a concern. And you got to understand those numbers, too, because what could happen is that you could have had a write-off last year, made the earnings look much higher, or vice versa. You could have had a sale of an asset, which your earnings were higher. Oh, my gosh, now they're down. You've got to understand the numbers because saying, oh, they're not doing as good as the industry. Well, it's because of last year numbers that you're comparing to. So you've got to understand the whole thing uh, when you're looking at earnings and sales. Yeah, and, and, and the reason, too, to, to look at this is you just want to make sure you're understanding what's going on with that company. You know, if their sales are growing, their earnings are growing, we like to see that happen mm -hmm. over time. You don't want a company, like I always say, is the next Polaroid camera that, hey, they might have some really good valuation ratios over the next tw right. last 12 months, but now going forward, is that company going to be able to sustain and be in business? Yeah, and, and it's so important, again, I want to come back to understanding the numbers <clears throat> because a number is very important to understand it. Some people just throw out the numbers, but you've got to look at the details of it. Let's move on, and this is something that's always got me through the bad times. And, again, I, I, I've been investing since, well, gosh, I started in 85, went through 87, went through the banking crisis in 1990, the tech boom and bust, the Great Recession. What's very important when it comes to a business or a stock or an equity is making sure they have a strong balance sheet because you don't know when the bad times are going to come up. They're not going to surprise you, and all of a sudden you had to come here with a weak balance sheet, and it starts faltering, and it doesn't make it through that time frame. So very important to look at the financial strength of a company via the balance sheet. Yeah, and, and the, the big thing, as you said, is, I mean, everyone knows businesses have, you know, positive times and down times. It's not always a pretty rosy picture. You you have those those different cycles, those different variations, and, and people that, that say they can time it, it's not true. You know, I, I know there was an economist, I, I believe it was Howard Maynard Keynes, and, and he was a, you know, very intelligent economist. Knew he, the economy very well. Yeah, right. and he tried to time the stock market based off economic cycles. It did not work. He did not do well. So what did he switch to? Just buying businesses and investing in businesses. <laughs> and I'm saying if, if one of the brightest economists of all time could not time the economic cycles, what makes you think an average person? Could time the economic cycles and it's so true because you could be going through a downtime uh in the economy but yet the stocks on the stocks are doing well why because it's a strong business so again don't worry about the econ the economy uh it is a fact you want to kind of look at and understand but don't think it's going to if the economy is slowing down like oh my gosh i can't invest i gotta get out of the market because you can miss some great buys and some great uh, companies that you have because you're looking at the economy, which didn't affect it. Yeah, and, and, and the point I want to make here, too, with the economy is, as you kind of alluded to, was, you know, things could be going great. The company, oh, it's okay that they have a lot of debt because their sales are growing. They're going to be able to pay it back. Well, all of a sudden, if something pops out of nowhere and we go into a recession, now that company loses those sales, now their debt to equity could soar. That debt level could soar not be able to pay it back. So let's take a look at the, the things we look at on the financial strength portions of it. We start with the current ratio here, which is how much a company has and 12 months of assets over 12 months of liabilities. Yeah, and, and also to the current ratio, very important. And we like a number here around, oh, we'll go as low as 0.9 to maybe 1. And again, the current ratio tells you the capability 
again, of paying off your next 12 months of liabilities or 12 months of assets. But there's another one, too, that we take a peek at. We're not dependent on it, but it's nice to know about it, and that's the quick ratio. And the quick ratio, that, that one's also very intriguing because it's even more liquid. Like a, a, a current ratio includes inventory. Well, let's say you're going through a difficult time. You're going to have to sell that inventory at a fire sale. So that could be a very dangerous uh, liquid measure. The quick ratio, again, removes that inventory to give you a really good idea of how much cash and liquid investments that company has. So we do like to take a, take a quick peek at that one on top of the current ratio as well. And then we move on to the total debt to total equity. And this is very important. And I, I did want to go back to the current ratio, sure. too, before we get into the total debt to equity. One thing to also understand, I mean, the whole thing about this is sometimes people just go through this and they check it and they don't understand the numbers. The, the reason we want to talk about this is that you have companies like cruise lines, companies like airlines. Their current ratio and quick ratio could look very poor. You could have a quick ratio like, oh, my gosh, it's at 0.2. It looks terrible. It's because of the accounting behind that. A lot of times what's actually held on the balance sheet is those ticket sales. Well, those are all now not assets. They're current liabilities that they have to fulfill over the next 12 months. So you have to understand the industry that you're looking at. And if a number looks bad, understand why it looks bad. That doesn't mean don't invest in the company. You have to understand that first. And also, too, Chase, I'm glad we went back to that because the other thing, too, that's why the current ratio is so important is that if you have a bad current ratio um, and you can't make your – payments on your bills, your your creditors could force you into bankruptcy, and you have nothing you can say about it. Because if you can't pay those bills, you might have a, a, a great business, but if you can't pay those bills and creditor says, hey, you're now in default, you either pay up or we're going to put you in bankruptcy, and it will be done. Nothing the business can do. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Businesses do have what we call debt covenants, and insolvency mm-hmm. could, could be one of those where they say, okay, we, we want our money back. You know, don't have it. Oh, well, okay, we're, we're going to get it back then. Yep. We're going to force you into bankruptcy. Yep. yep. And uh, many structures on that you got to look at. So, again, the quick ratio, current ratio, very important to make sure that business is not having any financial problems on the short term. Longer term, we do look at uh, total debt to equity. Uh, we like that low. We, we get a little bit worried when it becomes uh, 100, 120, I think is the max that we'll go to. And, and it's very simply that you're looking at that, that, you, that you don't want your debt to exceed your equity. You see this many times with companies have no equity. Why? Because their debt exceeds you know what they have and it, and it, it puts them into a position to where it's kind of like having a negative net worth where and we always talk about the house situation great to hold, own a house worth a million dollars but not so good when you have 1.5 on it not a good deal yeah and it, it's it's definitely important we like to stray away from high debt companies and i mean as you said if we see a debt to equity that's 150 200 percent I don't care what the name of the business is. We're not going to go towards it. I mean, we've seen these major companies file bankruptcy in the past. You know, whether it be airlines back in the 2000s, you saw American Airlines, you saw Delta, you know, Toys R Us, Sears Holdings. You've seen all these companies file bankruptcy. And you might be saying, oh, well, well, no, duh, they filed bankruptcy. I can tell you, back in their heyday, (laughs) it was not a no, duh. They were great investments during their, their time periods. And another thing to look at, too, here, very important, the debt to equity, you've got to remember about those intangible assets because they can be an asset which could be written down. And while your debt to equity goes at a, a fine number, we'll say maybe uh, 75, well, you write down those intangible assets. Also, now your uh, debt to equity rises to maybe 125. Like, oh, I didn't know that's going to happen. 
got to understand the numbers. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, as you kind of mentioned too, I hate to jump back, but I did want to go back to the liquidity ratios. We always tell people, you're not going to be able to get debt and borrow money when things are terrible. Right. So if you have no <laughs> liquidity to get you through a tough time, you're probably not going to be able to get good inexpensive capital when things are in a difficult period. So that's why it's so important to go into things with strong balance sheets. And again, that, that's why we won't even look at companies with weak balance sheets. And Chase, another thing that we look at when we're investing in a company, a lot of times on the radio show, very rarely do we talk about this because it's another thing to look at. But we look at total debt to equity plus long-term debt to equity. Why is this so important? Well, if you're in a rising interest rate environment, you would hate to have a lot of money in short-term debt. And if you have, like, uh, just an example, uh, total debt to equity might be 75, long-term debt to equity, eh, maybe 65, means you don't have a lot of short-term debt. But if you do have maybe a, a long-term debt to equity, maybe only 25 or 30, you could be at risk of interest rates going up, and that could really cause you your earnings to go down the road because now you're going to pay a higher expense for that. You're trying to convert it over. So understand also long-term debt to equity and total debt to equity. Yeah, I generally like to see when companies are able to spread out their, their debt liabilities over different time periods. And, and most of the time you can look through you know 10Q, 10K to see, well, when do those different notes expire? Are they credit revolving facilities? What are the interest rates? Because you can, again, see what happens if you have a, a note that's at 3%. What comes due next year? Interest rates are now at, let's say, 7 8%. Well, now you're going to have to refinance at more than double what you were getting beforehand. could be very dangerous, and it could, as you said, really hurt your earnings because interest expenses is part of your income statement. And, and Chase, you brought up two important things. I'll let you talk about because I know you love them. You brought up the 10Q, 10K. you got to explain what that is and how much you love them. Oh, I mean, they're, they're fantastic. They're, they're SEC filings where you go in, they're only about 100 pages long, and, and you can just find out so much different items about the business. I mean, I talked about you know the different debt filings and, and when those debt notes are coming due. I mean, we always talk about, too, a, a great thing I look at here is we have you know a home builder in the portfolio. Well, we wanted to make sure that home builder had good sales across the country right. and you know oftentimes you can see that breakdown so you can see you know okay where are the sales are they in the west the south the northeast are they too concentrated in one area i might say ah we don't want to buy that home builder now so yeah and, and chase i can say you, you told me stories where you take these to parties and you're like the life of the party but he's gathering around you to listen you about the 10q 10k i mean they're very exciting aren't they i'll let you in a little secret i tell people that but that's not the truth what? <laughs> oh, I, I, don't, I try to use that i, I, I would give uh, our single guys like a chance like hey be the life of the party but you say it doesn't work okay <laughs> no people don't love numbers as much as we do unfortunately <laughs> all right let's move on to the management effectiveness another thing that's important there's different things you can look at uh, return on assets uh, return on total long-term capital, return on equity. Uh, let's talk about the return on equity because that's one that's very important as well. Um, it just shows you what type of return. Very simply, you're getting on your equity. And we like to see a number eh, around 15% if we feel pretty comfortable with it. Yeah, it, exactly, because you could have a very high equity. Well, let's say you're, you're not getting much income from there. Well, if you have all these assets that are exceeding your liabilities and you have this large equity, why aren't you able to produce income from that? It could be a series of maybe worthless assets that, that aren't doing much for you. Mm -hmm. So, again, you, you want to make sure that you are able to derive some type of return from the company, and, and that's what this shows us. And, again, we do compare this to the industry average as well to see what the industry is doing because it, it can change a little bit. Uh, we do look at return on capital as well, which includes you add back the debt in. It can show you if the debt is really worthwhile because if you're not going to return on it, wait, maybe this company is over-leveraged. 
could be a problem. I mean, that's a great point because, you know, if a company is borrowing money, don't borrow money just to borrow money. You know, if you borrow at a 7% interest rate, well, you better be able to produce at least a 7% growth on that money. Should be more, otherwise it's a waste of time. (laughs) But, you know, very important that that you incorporate that back into the structure as well because, you know, companies do have different accesses to capital, you know, whether it's the equity market or the the debt market, want to make sure they're able to generate returns when they they do access that capital. Yeah, these are very good. And also, too, we do look at return on assets as well to make sure that, uh, again, same situation, are they going to return? Let's just say return on assets, usually at least about 5% uh, to be on the safe side. Yeah, and, and the big thing with return on assets, I mean, we talked a little bit about the intangible assets uh, at the beginning of the show well what we can see here is if a company has a good return on assets it could show that those intangible assets could be worthwhile so again we will look at the intangible assets if a company has intangible assets we might still buy it oftentimes people say well you said no intangible assets i'm not going to buy it right very important to again understand the full picture because if they're able to derive good income from those assets and they're able to maintain that for many many years it could be an okay spot, and it could be a worthwhile investment as well. And Chase, I do want to bring up at this point in time, too, that all these numbers are very important, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be right next week because you might find these and say, oh, my gosh, you know, this is terrible. And for weeks, maybe even months, the stock can continue to rise, but eventually it will falter. So don't think by doing this you're going to be the smart guy and you're going to pick a stock at 10 and next week is at 15. That's not long-term investing. When you're investing, again, you're, you're going for two, three, four, five years down the road. You will be right doing all this. But even with that said, you're not going to be right all the time. Things are going to change on you. I mean, we've had companies where it was a great business, great business. Something happened. All of a sudden, a bad business. We had to sell at a loss. That is going to happen to you when you're investing. Uh, that's such a great point because a lot of times people will, will look and we say the, the pray and hope game when, you know, the stock goes down. and Well, I'm going to wait till it get back, gets back to where I bought it. Well, if they're in an industry that all of a sudden got wiped out, you may want to get out of there before they they file bankruptcy. So it's very important. Again, businesses change. Business environments change. Every day, that stock price has to reflect, again, that value. If things do change, well, what is the new value of that company? And that's why, again, we'll, we'll look at our businesses every single Monday to make sure we're not missing something. And every quarter, we read the conference call, the they all look at the new financial statements, uh, look at the 10Q, 10K if we need to, something on like that. So all these different things to understand what that business is doing. And we've had companies, uh, again, 10, 12, I think even now probably 13, 14 years in a company, uh, portfolio, a couple of companies. Every single Monday, look at those numbers. Every single quarter, look at the numbers. Read what's going on in the business. You've got to understand that business because if you don't, you will get blindsided. Uh, long-term as an investor. Uh, Let's move on to profitability ratios. And this is one thing that, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, Sometimes people can tell you what the P.E. ratio is. And then you ask them, well, is the business profitable? And and they kind of get this blank stare like, well, I don't know. I didn't really check that. Uh, We like to look at it. And I do hear some talk about the gross margin. Yeah, I guess you can look at that. But we're more into does the business make a profit at the absolute bottom line? We want to see that. And if not, why? Yeah, I mean, people talk about, you know, EBITDA, which is, you know, earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. Uh, and it's great if they're able to have that be be positive. 
but well, what if they have the interest? What if they have the taxes <laughs> and now they're break even? Their their income is is not very attractive. That's why we again like to look at the bottom line. What is their net income for the quarter, or what is their income after tax margin? Their absolute profit margin. We like to invest in businesses that actually make money, make a profit, and we do compare that to the industry average because there's a lot of different companies that you know, may have a lower profit, but that's part of the industry. So you understand, well, you know, if it's a restaurant, uh, I'm sorry, grocery store versus technology company, you can compare those profits. It's a completely different business. You have to understand and compare to the industry with what you compete in. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great point because you have, you know, a technology company that, that has these very high margins and then compare it to, let's say, a restaurant that does a lot of turnover, very low margins. As you said, you got to understand the different industries, and, and things are going to be so different. And that's a big mistake I think a lot of people make is they say, well, this company is doing really great, and this company's not. Well, you have to look again. There, there are different types of companies out there, and, and very important, you don't just invest all of your money into one type of industry, one type of company, because that could be very, very dangerous. It be very dangerous. And that happened back in the tech boom. Everybody, everybody's, oh, I got 90% in technology because that's the best growth and so forth. And then that all fell apart. You still have to diversify your portfolio. Uh, we'll kind of get into portfolio analysis a little bit as well, a little bit later in the show. But also, too, that's why you look at not just net profit margin, but you do also look at return on equity because that takes that into account. So, again, you have a grocery store with maybe a 2%, 3% profit margin uh, versus a technology company with a 20% profit margin. You then can compare return on equity because that kind of wipes it out because you have a lot more sales on the grocery store versus the technology company. Yeah, and, and the big thing to kind of allude to here is that you mentioned return on capital versus profit margin. All these financial statements work together. So, you know, don't just look at one and say, oh, that's good. No, you have to look at the whole picture together to make sure it is a good business. You know, that does kind of bring up a good point, too. People will ask, well, what are the top four things you look for in a company? The answer is there's not really a top four. You got to look at everything to make sure it's a good business. Yeah, and, and that's so true because I'll ask that because that's just too much work. Just give me the top four. Give me the top five things I can look at. And it's kind of like when, when I don't give my friends, like, well, just give me a stock pick. It's like, no, because it, it's not going to work out for you. And then we don't become friends because I gave you one company out of, you know, 15 or 20 companies. And that was the one that didn't do as well. And we sold it like years ago. And no <laughs> one, you never asked me about it. You still have it. So you've got to look at all the numbers and, and, and be patient. And, and another area that's very important that we want to talk about is the efficiency of the company. Because this is something that, and I don't think... One uh, percent of the investors look at this. They're, they're so into the hype of the growth rates and oh, the business is this, and everybody's going to buy that. That will work for a while, and a while doesn't mean you know two or three days. A while could be two or three years, even longer sometimes. I mean, uh, we go back to the tulip bus back in what the sixteen hundreds, the tech boom and bus that happened for years. Craziness can go on for very long. We also talked about uh, the Nifty Fifty back in the seventies. Every single time it has the same outcome, but people say it's different this time. And they said that in the 70s, said that during the tech boom, said that back with the tulip crisis in the 1600s. It's different this time. And it is until it changes, and then you're left holding the empty bag. Yeah, and it, it's it's so interesting. I mean, you, you look back at history, and you know we're supposed to learn from history. It seems like we don't, you know, <laughs> and, and and it's always, as you said, a, a different story, but it's it's the same result, and, and people will, will justify it, and I think the reason people justify it as well is because, well, I've done well on it on the last six months, Yep. and I think it's going to do well over the next six months, 
and then all of a sudden doesn't do well over the next six months, and then you say stocks are risky, and you sell, and then you lose money. So that's why, again, having that fundamental approach, if you stick to a disciplined approach and actually understand why you're doing well, that, that's where you're going to be successful. I think the most dangerous thing people do is when they're investing, they don't know why they're successful, and then they lose 70 80 90%, and they don't know why. Well, it's because you didn't really have a strategy that you're implementing. You're kind of flying by the seat of your pants, and all of a sudden that doesn't work. You lose big time. It's not your fault, though. It's the stock market's fault. Wrong. No, you didn't know what you were doing, and and that's why you had some big issues. And and you said six months. I'll say they can go sometimes two, three years, maybe even longer where things just keep going on and on. Oh, this is great and so forth. But everything eventually comes back to the mean. Everything comes back to, like, wait a minute. Why are we overpaying for this company? Again, the, the, the long-term history of the P.E. ratio goes from, like, 14 to, I think, around 17. That's a long-term time frame. Many times it's gone way above that, which is expensive. Sometimes it goes way below that, which is a great buying opportunity. But everything will come back to normalcy. Sometimes it takes longer than other times, but it will come back always. Yeah, I mean, you kind of brought up the tech boom as well, and you talk about, I just use six months as kind of an arbitrary number. I mean, you look back, Alan Greenspan, who was the head of the Fed at that time, the Fed chairman, in 1996, again, said there was a rational exuberance at that point. Well, the bubble didn't burst until 2000. Yep. You know, it, it took a long time, and, oh, Alan Greenspan doesn't know what he's talking about, and, you know, those people, they rode these companies all the way up. Just, again, to see them fall 70, 80, 90%, these huge losses. You pretty much wiped out all the gains you had. And then the problem is the people that bought at the peak, wow, they lost so much of their money. And it's such a a, a terrible thing. That's, again, understand why you're investing and how you're investing in those companies. Uh, Chase, I I started talking about the efficiency. This is another thing that's really helped us and, and our firm stay away from problems because there's two major things that we look at. First off is receivable turnover over the last 12 months. And th- this is very important because you can have all the sales you want, but you got to collect on them. And you have to collect them on a reasonable time frame because if not, they're going to have problems with the receivables. And problems with cash flow. I mean, if you're not converting those receivables to cash, that's great. You could have you know a billion dollars in receivables, <laughs> but now you're building your payables because you don't have any cash to pay off those things. So that is why you're very important. You want to understand the credit terms that you have with your suppliers and uh, the people you're selling to to make sure you're able to generate that into cash, not just accounts receivable. And also, too, you want to look at the aging because if you have a, a receivable 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, as that becomes older, it's called aging, less likely you're going to collect on that, which will then become a bad debt which then hits your your earnings, your profits, as you said, which then raises your P.E. So all this is, is what we've been saying. It's all connected together. You've got to understand these numbers. And it's just a warning sign. And, again, doesn't mean that you're going to, oh, my gosh, receivable turnover is so low. The industry's at 10 and receivable turnover at 5. doesn't mean because you saw it, the stock's going to drop tomorrow. It could take 6, 12 months for that to be, uh, come into a, a, being a problem because they can kind of carry that on for a while. So you you got to be aware of it. You might say that's very low. It's a problem. Sell out of it. Stock could even go up, but long term, you're avoiding the storm. Exactly. And then the last thing we look at here in the efficiency of a company is the inventory turnover of the business. And again, this is a, a very important thing to look at. I always tell people, you know, let's say you have a, a cell phone. Well, a cell phone 10 years ago versus today, miles apart. You don't want to have all of these. 10-year-old cell phones in your inventory. You want to make sure that inventory is turning over because the other thing, too, is it costs money to store 
right. that inventory. So that's why it is important to make sure that inventory isn't sitting idle in yeah. the warehouse. Yeah, because if it's a technology, it becomes obsolete. If you're a food company, it can become perishable, other perishable items that all of a sudden you, you, you've lost your inventory, which again, then you have another problem because that inventory was carried a certain dollar amount. Well, because it becomes obsolete or perishable, now you have another write-off that again, you have to write off against your earnings we're going to raise your P.E. ratio. So, again, you've got to understand the inventory. And what we do is we compare over the last 12 months the inventory turnover compared to the industry average. And, again, here again, if you see that it's really low compared to the industry, well, that could be a problem. And this is where you have to understand the business. And I remember years ago I was looking at a wine company. And, oh, my gosh, their inventory turnover was so low compared to the industry. What's going on here? Well, didn't realize until I did the further research that in that alcohol industry was beer. And beer, you turn it over pretty quickly. Wine becomes more valuable with age. So a wine company will keep that wine for sometimes months, sometimes years to age it. Therefore, that's going to reduce your turnover. So very important, again, to understand the business you're buying and understand the numbers that you're looking at. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I was kind of thinking too, uh, we talked about a couple of different industries. Retail is a, a one that changes quite quickly because you mm -hmm. can have, you know, summer fashion, all of a sudden you got all these bikinis on there, you didn't turn your inventory turnover well enough. Now you got to sell that to a discount retailer and you sell that at a major loss compared to what you were supposed to sell it at. So uh, again, understand the industry, but it, it seems that inventory turnover is pretty important to understand regardless of the industry, just have to see how it fits in and the timing of it. You know, Jason, it's important until it's not important. But that's why you got to check the number to make sure it's not going to be an issue and, again, understand the business you're buying. What we've done, we looked at everything on a business over the past, well, over the history, over the past, you know, 6, 12 months and so forth, how they've done in the past. But now you know that, well, the company looks pretty valuable, but how do we value this going forward? And what we do is we look at the earnings estimates uh, based on the average of analysts. And we like to have at least five or seven analysts to go forward because we don't want the highest guy because he may be you know, holding it, trying to pump it. Uh, we don't want the lowest guy because he'd be trying to short it. So that's why we like an average estimate of analysts about five, feel more comfortable with seven analysts. Yeah, the more the merrier here. It gives you more to look at and uh, gives me a better confidence on that as well. I mean, some companies are up 25, 30. Mm -hmm. feel pretty comfortable with those. But like I said, we're normally good with five to seven is, is kind of where we'll, we'll stop. If there's two analysts, eh, we probably won't buy that company. Um, and we also do look at the high and the low. Yep. Because it can be concerning if you look at something saying one analyst says they're going to produce $5 per share and one analyst says they're going to do negative $2 per share. How could the discrepancy be that wide? Is it a very uncertain business? could be a concern. So yep. We really have to understand those estimates as well. Yeah, and, and that's what we look at is, is the tighter the number, the closer the numbers are, those 7, 10, 20 analysts, the more likely they're going to hit that earnings number. And why is that earnings number so important? Well, that's how we get our target sell price by going ahead usually a, a year and a half uh, or, or more. So uh, like uh, if we're looking down the road and, and it's June, we're not looking at December numbers. We're looking at next year's December numbers. So we, we say, what is this coming to be worth about 18 months down the road? And we use a future multiple for that. Yeah. And, and it's about year and a half to two years. We, we won't look out four or five years because then you, you start to get too unpredictable. About year and a half to two years is that, that time frame we'll look at. And the multiple we use is we use an estimate 
that's ba- or not the estimate. We use the number for the multiple over the last, you know, gosh, many, many years, the long-term average for the forward PE multiple. And the forward PE is, again, the forward price to earnings multiple. So what is the future earnings going to be priced at? And right now it's about 16, 16 and a half times future earnings. That's what we'll apply to those estimated earnings. And that's how we get our target sell price. And also, too, there's two different types you can look at. Number one is gap earnings, which stands for generally accepted accounting principles, and then pre-accept earnings. Now, you've got to understand the difference. We use gap a lot. And the reason we like gap is because it levels the playing field. You know, a lot of technology companies, they may back out a lot of these different items, and then other technology companies might not. I mean, I talk about things like currency fluctuation, stock-based compensation. You know, a company can pretty much back out whatever they want to back out as long as they give you that in the footnote. But all companies have to comply with the GAAP standard. So that's why we like to look at the GAAP numbers is because, again, it gives you an apples-to-apples, oranges-to-oranges basis that you can compare companies against one another. Yeah, and again, these can give you numbers, and we like what we call a margin of safety. Uh, we're not going to buy it like, oh, it's like 5% away. No, because, again, we understand these numbers, and they do change, uh, can change daily, weekly, whatever. That's why, again, we do the numbers every single week because we want to see are the analysts changing their projections going forward. Um, also, too, we will look, are they increasing their estimates? Are they decreasing their estimates? Every week we want to follow what are these analysts, and, again, the mean all the analysts, what are they saying about the earnings going forward? Because that can change your target sell price. Yeah, and as you said, when when that number does hit, that target sell price, I'll say comes due. You know, let's say our target sell price is a hundred dollars. We could be following that stock for five, six, seven years and have held it that whole time. But when it hits that hundred dollars, our motto here is no emotions, just results. We're gonna sell out. I don't care if we made a hundred, two hundred, three hundred percent profit on the company. Once it hits there, we're done. We're out. It's become now overvalued in our opinions let's go find something else that is trading at a better value and chase i want to let people know too that doesn't mean you're going to sell at the absolute top we always talk about you'll never buy a stock at the absolute bottom sell at the absolute top unless you're lucky and that can happen from time to time but you have to have a discipline that gets you out of high price companies because again it you may sell the stock at 20 maybe it goes to 22 25 maybe higher but what you hopefully did was you sold that business at 16.2 times earnings, and you bought another business that was a much better buy at 10 to 12 times earnings, which means you have more potential. You've increased your probability of doing better paying something lower for a company than writing something high just because you fell in love with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I always kind of tell people, you know, it's funny you hear different stories of you know people that don't want to sell their stock because they've done so well on it. I, I've 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 done really well, so I, I'm not going to sell it. Well, if it's very very expensive, probably a good time to sell it. Right. On the other side of that, people are funny because when things are going down, and oh my gosh, my stock's down thirty percent. You know, I, I haven't done so well. I think I'm going to cut my losses here and sell out. Well, if the fundamentals are poor, yeah, that was probably a good decision. But if the fundamentals are still very very strong on it, it might be a great opportunity to add more to the. The position there because it could really help with their long-term performance. Yeah, and you got to understand again. Comes back to understanding those numbers and what you're doing and so forth. And, and again, don't fall in love with the stock. And, and, and when it comes to portfolio management, it's very hard because you're right. People want to hold on to the winners, and they forget the basic thing of investing: buy low and sell high. But when it's in their portfolio, they do the opposite. They they want to sell low 
and buy high because they'll keep their high flyers because, oh, I love that company. It's done so great. And maybe it'll keep doing great for a little bit longer. But eventually the averages come back and that stock will fall. And the ones that you bought, if they, again, you're right, if they have strong fundamentals and maybe they got hit because of a, a, a short-term problem, uh, something happened, maybe maybe their inventory was messed up a little bit, but that's a fixable problem. That's what we look for is we, we try to find companies that have a fixable problem that can be fixed in two, three years. So it doesn't mean two, three months. It means two, three years, and you can have enormous returns by finding those right companies that have that fixable problem. Yeah, and, and we always tell people, you know, investing is simple, but it's not easy. And what do I mean by that? Everyone knows you're supposed to buy low and sell high. I, th I think we all get, grasp that concept. That's the simple part of investing. Now, the not so easy part of investing is things do move up and down. You know, it, it's not always a pretty ride. You, you do have companies that have these short-term problems that arise, and the stock's going to fall. But you have to understand, is it worth sticking with the companies that's falling? That's, that's the part that's not so easy. And Chase, I do want to explain more about we are value investors. And I want to explain the difference to people because that means we're never going to buy the high flyers, the ones that are so popular that are trading at 30, 50, maybe 70 times earnings. We're never going to buy those because that just is a problem going forward. And we have looked at the long-term history. Oh, long-term history, value has outperformed growth. I believe it's over like a 10-year period it has. Over a one-year period, there's times that growth does outperform. That's going to happen. But we'd like to have something we can grab onto, and that's called value investing. I think you've got some numbers on value investing, don't you? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing we look at is, you know, we call it the pain index. I mean, a lot of times growth can be in, be in favor, and, you know, those are typically the names that, that people know quite well. And you say, oh, I love that company, and oh, it's, it's such a great business. And, again, very important to decipher between a great business and a great stock because a company can be a great business but an expensive stock. We don't like to invest in that. But generally, those are what we call the growth companies. And while they can do very, very well, we talk again about the, the tech bust. The worst three-year time frame for growth investing, you would have lost 55% of your money. And that, of course, was the tech bust from 2000 to 2002. Now, value investing on the other side, eh, not as painful. There was still a down period, a financial crisis. The worst three-year return ever for financial investing in uh in uh, value companies, I was blanking on the value side of it, right. <laughs> and value companies was about 24.5% from 2007 to 2009. So about half what growth was, a lot more manageable than losing half your portfolio for three years. Yeah, because I, I think somebody, they wouldn't like it, but they're down 24%. They're not going to be happy, but I think they can handle that. On the other side, if you're down 45 50 55%, you're going to panic and pull out because you just can't handle the emotional side of that. And it's something that you have to look at. And, and Chase, the other thing I want to address too, that you hear this thing, oh, well, you're younger. You can take the risk and so forth. Don't worry about it. Invest in the high flyers and so so forth. They're missing the biggest part. I do not believe in that. I think if you're younger, you should not be risking your capital because what you're missing is you're missing the comp compounding effect long term, which can be enormous for you. And if you lose the money, you can't compound. Much better being conservative when you're younger. And, and again, being conservative doesn't mean you put it into the bank account. It means you invest properly and maybe get an 8, 10, maybe a 12% return and stop trying for the home runs. Yeah, we always tell people we try and hit those singles because yep. if you look at the uh, the singles and you just keep getting on base and producing those runs, hey, not hitting any home runs, but Wow, all of a sudden those singles start to add up quite quickly. They, they do. And, and again, it might be fun to you know buy that high-risk stock and it doubles in price and so forth. 
that's going to happen, but you're going to lose a lot more doing that philosophy. And if you want to have fun, I tell people, go to Vegas. You know, at least you get free drinks when you're there. When it comes to investing, be a smart investor. Be a wise investor. Don't try to, to – and again, I have done over the years, I've had very high returns. But I always tell people, don't get used to it. This is not the norm uh, we're going to have. And we tell people, out of a seven-year period, you're going to have a couple losing years. I mean, that's going to happen with real investing. Yeah, no, that's such an important thing to point out is, you know, it's, it's not a, a straight-up line. Things do move up and down. But there is a big difference between risk and volatility. Oftentimes, here people talk about, oh, well, the stock market's so risky. I mean, we look back going back to uh, about 1980, so about a 40-year time frame, uh, depending on uh, yeah, about 40 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we tell people that it's positive about 75% of the time, but the annual drop per year averages about 14%. So that means from top to bottom, it's fallen about 14%. Wow, that sounds quite terrifying. But you have to look at the full year because you're not investing and trying to time the market each and every single year. Again, 75% of the time about you're seeing positive annual returns. Yep. And, and let me tell people, you, you know, they, they think that financial advisors and, and, and even us like, well, you should know this. You, you know, you, you, you should be able to predict or, or understand the market's going to drop. That is a losing game because actually Peter Lynch, very well-known investor for uh, Fidelity, the Magellan Fund, um, he, he was quoted as saying, people have lost more money trying to avoid the corrections than the corrections themselves because you might get it right. I'm, I'm sure there's people that got the tech boom right now. I'll never forget uh, back in the 80s, Elaine Garzarelli, never got a name from Oppenheimer. She predicted the 87 crash. And they're like, oh, she was like famous. You could not turn on a business channel without seeing her. But then she was still in cash by 1991, and she had missed the run-up from 87. So you may get one thing right, but if you miss the other three or four, you're not going to have good long-term returns. So don't expect, uh, you know, if you do become a client of us, don't expect we're going to miss these little downturns. Uh, it's going to happen. But we're looking at how you're going to do 5, 10, 15 years down the road. That's when you look at like, gosh, if I – I've had people say smart people, very, very rich people, very wealthy people, say if I could just average 10% of long-term, I would be thrilled to death. Yeah, and the problem is people want to do 20 25%. It's not realistic. You're, you're going to lose a lot of money with, with those types of and returns. And unfortunately, many times it's people that can't afford to lose it, and then they have a bad retirement. Be happy. Gosh, if you even get an 8% return compounding over years, you're going to do very, very well. Um, I did want you, you kind of went to the volatility side. Uh, were you done with that? Because I think there was something else. Did you? Uh, I, I know one year we always talk about is 87. Did you bring up 87? Yeah, I did not bring up 1987 yet. But, yeah, that's a great topic to bring up is, you know, 1987, you know, Black Monday, stocks were down about 34% at one point during there. And, oh, my gosh, why did you ever invest in stocks? They're so risky. That's what you heard in the media. Well, you never heard, kind of back to what I said, you have losing periods during the year. But for the full year 1987, you were positive 2% if you invested January 1st and stayed invested through December 31st. But the problem was people panicked. Oh, my mm -hmm. gosh, my stocks are so risky. I'm going to sell out when things are down 34%. Well, then in the years following 1987, they were up 12 and 27%. So these people, they locked in these big losses, and then they missed out on big returns. And that's why it, it's impossible to time the market. Yep. And our slogan at, at our firm, Will Asset Management, is no emotions, just results, because the emotions, there's no room for emotions in investing. You've got to look at the fundamentals and understand the business and understand you're, n you're not going to be perfect. And, and again, I tell people I'm wrong a third of the time. That's going to happen. But we still do very well over the long term. You did bring up volatility. I, I, I want to talk about that. We've got a little more time left here. Uh, I want to talk about
talk about understanding market volatility because people, when they see the stocks drop, like, oh, my gosh, it's terrible. Everybody's selling. Well, let's t let me tell you this. On average trading volume on normal market days is about 0.3%. Oh, that's all that's trading? But what about those big days when the market drops, you know, 1,000, 1,500 points? Oh, my gosh, everybody's selling out except for me. That is incorrect. On high volatility days, it's only 0.6% of that volume is actually trading, which means the other 99.4% is just sitting there because the smart investors aren't selling. What is actually happening, up to 73% of that volume comes from high-frequency traders. And these guys can go in and out, in and out, in and out, many times throughout the day where the smart investors are just like sitting back and just saying, nope, I'm not going to sell this great business that I own. Yeah, it's a great way to kind of look at it. I always tell people, you know, people like real estate because they can touch it and they feel it and they feel safer with it. But the way to kind of explain that is, again, 0.3%. Well, that means, let's say there's a 1,000 homes in your neighborhood, and one home they have to sell because they just got to get out. Well, now, three homes, excuse me, three out of 1,000 homes had to sell because they had to get out. Your home is priced at the same price as their home. That makes no sense, right? Right. It's the same thing for the stock market. You see the movement up and down, up and down, but that doesn't mean everyone's selling their shares. And people might have to lock in those losses because they got to get out. Again, you have to understand the big picture that 99.7% of people are not selling during most market days. And just because those three people are selling doesn't mean that's the value at the price. And I tell people the same thing with real estate. If you put, uh, you had to sell that day, you put on the, 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 the front lawn, house for sale today, got to be sold today, you're not going to get a good price for it. But when it comes to in stocks, if they're down, oh, I'm going to sell, I'm going to get out. That could be the worst time to sell. Maybe a time to be buying, but you don't know what to do if you don't understand the fundamentals. You're acting on emotions, not reality. The other thing we want to talk about, we only got a couple minutes left here, is, is a portfolio design. Um, a lot of people think you have to have like a 50, 100 different stocks to be diversified. That is incorrect. And on radio, we can't show you the, the formula that shows you that's incorrect. <laughs> but, but the right number to have in a portfolio is 15 to 18 stocks in portfolio. That will give you the least amount of risk on your portfolio. And again, if you want to have the formula, we'll send it to people. Uh, it is in finance books. Uh, most advisors, I've never seen, actually, I've been doing this for over 40 years. I've never seen any advisor besides myself use this formula in finance books because they, they fall into the trap of asset allocation, which we hate and so forth. I don't think I have time to go on that. But they don't understand financial investing using these formulas to how to really reduce your risk. Yeah, and as you said, very important, you still don't put 15 companies in technology because yes. that is not a diversified <laughs> portfolio. You, you know, financial companies, you know, maybe an insurance company, a banking company, then you also put in something like a technology company, maybe a utility company, maybe a retailer, a food company. There's all these different industries out there, and it, it's, I don't want to say it's simple to build a, a portfolio of 15 to 18 businesses, but it don't get sucked in the trap of, well, I'm going to go into technology because it's done well. That, that's where you get, get burned years down the road. And, and Chase, the, the exciting part of value investing that, that I've loved for years is owning that business. They come out with new products, and you, you, you go to the store that you bought, and like, wow, you see all the people in the store that you own. And again, a very small part of it, but you're actually the owner of that store. And, and when we had Disney many years ago, we knew like two, three, four years down the road what the movie's going to come out on. So you own a business. That's the excitement. Not looking at the daily market ticker price. Oh, it's up, it's down. So I'll drive it crazy. Look at the business you own and get excited about that business, and you bought it on sale. Yeah, and again, because the business isn't investing in their business for the next day. They're investing in their business for the next five years. 
Yep, exactly. So, you know, Chase, I really enjoyed doing this. I hope that the listeners enjoyed it as well. I hope you got something out of it. We do workshops as well for people. We do more detail on that and actually see what we're talking about. You can always sign up for those uh, work, uh, workshops. Go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. If you want to call the office, you have questions for myself or Chase, please give us a call at the office, 858 858- Five four six four three zero six. That's eight five eight five four six four three zero six. Thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used on investment advice. Again, if you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, maybe you have other investment questions, feel free to give myself a call, Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at eight five eight five four six four three zero six. Again, that's eight five eight five four six four three zero six. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon right here on the Smart Investing Show. This program is sponsored by Wilsey Asset Management.